All righty, all righty. If I haven't met you, I'm Rob. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Big thank you to Anthony who put that video together for us. He always does such an incredible job. Well, we're kicking off a new series today in the book of Daniel. We're likely going to stop at chapter 7 because I don't know what happens after that. If you've read Daniel, you know what I'm saying. Um, I'm just joking. We went through actually Daniel as a church. Uh, boy, like 12 years ago, we went through the whole thing. So we'll see where the Lord leads. But I really want us to camp out in the kind of the first half of the narrative portions in order to, to help us orient to this moment that we find ourselves And so we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive, and we're just going to look at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It's uh, page 737 in the Bibles in front of you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you, in your wisdom, in your kindness, in your generosity, you have spoken to us, and you have preserved that word in this book that we call a Bible. So as we come to it, may we come with um, anticipation and expectation and longing and submission and humility and hunger. Thank you that your word comes to us in exactly the way we need it, that it never returns void, that it always accomplishes the purposes for which you sent it. And so that's what we ask today, that it would do that in our, in our souls, in our hearts, in our minds, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our city, in our county. Fathers, we gather before your word. We, we want to be challenged. We want to be directed. We want to be refined God, we want to be inspired. We want all those things. But what we need more than anything else is we gather as your people, is to leave this time more impressed with Jesus Christ, our King, our Hero, our Savior. So I ask that you would make him loud. Make him loud in this text. Make him loud in this sermon. Make him loud in our songs, loud in communion, loud in our conversations, and loud throughout this week until we get to gather again as your people to spur one another on in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is God's holy, flawless, and helpful word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Feel free to grab a seat. These two verses set the table for the rest of the book of Daniel. The 605, uh, the third year of Jehoiakim would have been 605 BC. Um, in modern day in Babylon, modern day Iraq, they attacked Jerusalem, they besieged it, and they won. 
They carry off the, the spoils of these sacred objects. We see it multiple times that they took these vessels that were, were to, to worship God and they put them into the house of a, of a pagan, of a foreign god in what is known as the land of Shinar. Some people in here, might that might ring a bell. The land of Shinar, if you go way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 11, it's where we have the Tower of Babel. It's where a group of people gathered together to build a name for themselves, to say we don't need God. We don't want to live in reference to God. We just want to, we want to do our own thing and so they tried to erect this tower to, to make their name great. And so that's where these vessels that are used, it'd be like taking the, the elements that we use for communion and devoting them to pagan practices. As you go on in Daniel 1, which we'll, we'll begin to hit some of these other verses next week and the following week, is that they take um, some, of the, some of the youth, likely teenagers, those that grew up in royal or noble families, and they're going to drag them off into Babylon. They're going to reprogram and rename them and retrain them to give them a different worldview and a different, different worship. This didn't happen overnight, for sure, what happened in 605, but it had to be a massive shock. I mean, this was God's people in God-given land that are now defeated, captured, and exiled. It's like they went to bed in Jerusalem and they woke up in Babylon. Anyone feel like that? You don't have to go back that many years to, to, to say, like, if you're a Christ follower, that it felt a little bit different. The breakneck cultural changes they, in our culture, they really do seem unstoppable and like they're only speeding up. I think for many of us, the last couple of years have been probably the, the more disorienting of our lives between a global pandemic, race riots, political turmoil, and insurrection. I mean, we could go through the list of things that happen in such a short amount of time, and it feels like culture has advanced 40, 50 years. We went to bed in Jerusalem, and we woke up in Babylon. I read a book recently um, called Divided We Fall, and it's a... Uh, it's how we could ha- experience a succession in the United States. How could states spin off? And, and, uh, and uh, to be honest with you, it, the, the idea to me seem, seemed kind of laughable a number of years ago, but I don't know if it is. It just feels like there's so much anger and so much bitterness and so much hatred, and, and many of us just feel caught up in it and are confused. Here's a story that, um, that might sound kind of crazy. Uh, one of my, a good friend who's now in his 70s, he was, uh, worked in, in public works, had a public role, um, and this is back in the 80s, and is in a town in western Washington, not a, not a Christ follower, but he went to church every Sunday because that was the expectation. If you're going to do that job, you got to go to church because that's what people do. Would that happen anymore? That's not that long ago. I love the way uh, Tim Keller says it. He says, we are entering... A new era in which there is not only no social benefit to being Christian, but an actual social cost. In many places, culture is becoming increasingly hostile towards faith, and belief in God, truth, sin, and the afterlife are disappearing in more and more people. Now culture is producing people for whom Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible. Here's three conversations I had in about the last week and a half with people that are part of our church that work in, um, 
in uh, professional environments, publicly traded companies, and, and it, was, it, it was like the same conversation with each of them. It's just it's like, it's, this is really hard. This is really hard to know how I'm supposed to carry myself, what I'm supposed to do, what I'm supposed to, how, like, how I'm supposed to carry myself. One of them made this comment. They said, it, it feels like an act of courage when somebody asks you, what are you doing this weekend for you to say, oh, I'm going to church. Many of us feel that way. Think of our educators. What do you teach? What do you not teach? What posters do you put up? Which ones do you not put up? Which flags do you fly? Which ones do you not fly? Where do you speak up? And where do you stay quiet? What does faithful witness look like in this world right now? A little orientation to Daniel 605 BC when this happened, this third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. Like, think about this moment. This is massive political chaos. It's a global superpower, the Babylonians taking over another nation. These are people that are forced to live in a land that doesn't love their God, forced to learn ideologies and the spiritualities of that land. If you're, if you're Daniel, who this book is named after, and we're going to encounter three of his, his really good friends, they're going to be looking back on the rubble of the place that they loved and the God that they served in the midst of a land that doesn't love their God. Some of us feel maybe can relate to this. Larry Osborne in his book, Thriving in Babylon, says it like this. He says, we're no longer trying to impose our will on non-Christians. We're trying to keep non-Christians from imposing their will on us and our churches. If you haven't noticed, the culture wars are over. We lost. Now, I don't know if I would say it quite that boldly, and I, I don't assume everyone in this room would say it the same exact way, but that is, that is an interesting statement. Looking back over the last few years, maybe some of us would, would ask this, what happened? What just, what just happened? According to Osborne, and if you look at Daniel 1.1, you could say, well, we lost. Um, I won't make that declaration, but, but, but here's what it might feel like. Um, it kind of feels like bowling. Track with me. Um, I don't know if you've, I, I experienced one of the worst injuries of my life, bowling. And this tells you how uncoordinated I must be. I'm bowling. My, my high score is like 236, just saying. Um, but I was bowling, hadn't bowled in a while, and I went to throw the ball, and I dislocated my finger. Anyone else ever dislocate their finger bowling? Don't, don't let me out there. All right. So I dislocated, it just popped out, then popped in. I had to get my ring resized because my knuckle kind of, it just didn't heal quite right. So I remember dislocating my, it kind of feels like that. Like all of a sudden, you're just going about life doing this thing that you enjoy and then pop. Singing about Claude Acho, a uh, guy we sent out to plant a church in Boston, now down in, in uh, Memphis, and, and looking at pioneering another church at some point. And just a, just a fantastic guy. He was back here playing at the basketball tournament that happens every summer up in Linden. And he was uh, scheduled to preach the next day. It's Saturday, and I'm watching the game. And he's playing with some other guys from the church. And, and all of a sudden, ball smashes his hand, and he comes over. He says, and he's like, Rob, I can't look, but I need some help. And he holds his hand, and his fingers like this direction. I, it's not funny. That's t you should not laugh. That's, I'm just joking. You should laugh. So he, his finger just pops out. He's like, what do we do? I was like, 
I don't do anything. I take you to the hospital. And so we go to the ER, and we're sitting in the ER, and he's just kind of holding his hand. He's like, oh, man, this, this is terrible. And then this kid walks in, about 15 years old, whose shoulder is down here. I hear his mom just look at the nurse, one word, trampoline. <laughs> what just happened? Dislocation. That's what just happened. You felt like you were one spot. Dislocated. And it's painful. It's painful. It's painful. But let me give you another point with, with this. Uh, not all dislocations are the same. There's a severity to them, depending on what you actually dislocated. And for some people, as we have come into this cultural moment, you already knew what the Bible says is always true, no matter what you realize or not, is that you are exiles and sojourners in this land. You already knew that. So you weren't as surprised if, if a school teaches something that you don't support. You weren't as surprised with when a business organization taught something or expressed something that was contrary to the Bible. You weren't as shocked because you already embraced, like, we are strangers and exiles in this land, and this land is not my home, and, and I'm looking for a home. I'm like, you already realized that. Some of us didn't realize that. We might, maybe we even gave lip service to it, but we didn't really know it. We didn't really know that this is not my home. And culture happened, and, and it feels like every boin, bone is out of joint. Let me read a long quote from Alistair Begg. I think it's really helpful. In reality, for us in the English-speaking West, this world has tended to feel very much like home. And our treasures have been right before our eyes. But now we are finally facing the fact that this broken, sinful world in which we live is not actually our home. Now, that doesn't mean there's nothing beautiful or good or right. This world is mixed with so many things. But, but let's try to hear his point. That what the Bible says concerning believers in this world is really true, that we really are aliens and that we really are strangers. The fact of the matter is that it has always been true that we are strangers in and to this world. It's just been clouded, obscured by the size and influence and legal protection of the church in most of the Western world. But this world is not actually our home. We're not supposed to be treating this life the way other people treat it, as if this is the be-all and end-all of everything. Or as if as Christians, and this is going to hit some of us, or as, as Christians, we can have a comfortable, respectable prosperous life here and look forward to more of those things in eternity. Doesn't mean we don't want those things. It's just that just what we expect. Secularism pushes back again and again against what the Bible says about sexual ethics, about salvation, about education, about the role and reach of the state, or about matters of public welfare. Public opinion has turned against Christians Suddenly, as a minority group within an increasingly secularized nation, we are finding out how it feels to be outsiders. And we don't like it. And it's easy to become bewildered, angry, defensive, or defeated. I will tell you, just anecdotally, that is what I, I in, in my experience, what I'm observing is I think that there's this disorientation, this dislocation that happens, and we don't know what to do with it. 
We're, we're, we're a little bit unprepared is what it feels like. And so, so we're angry, we're lashing, we're surprised, we're blindsided, we're, we're capitulating, we're syncretizing, we're resistant, like we don't know what to do. So the question is, Babe goes on, I'm almost done with the quote. What does it look like to live as a Christian in a society that does not like what Christians believe? What we have to say and how we live. How are you going to live in this new normal? Those questions are why we're walking through Daniel, to try to give us some handles of how, how, can, we, how can we flourish in a, in a fierce and a fractured, a floundering world. And the series title is Field Guide, this, this idea of, of as you go out into the field, you can identify which mushroom should you eat and which one should you not because you die. Which, which animal, what do you do with that animal? What should I do in this situation? Something to, that God hands to us to be able to navigate the, the day-to-day decisions that we're all having to make. Now, if I put myself into the first chapter of Daniel, if you put yourself in the first chapter of Daniel, here's a question that, that I'd imagine many of us would be asking as we just got conquered by a global superpower. Is it going to be okay? Like, is it going to be all right? Is, is stuff going to work out? Is God's people, and I don't assume everyone here, we're so glad you're here from whatever perspective you come from, but is God's people, if you, if you put yourself in this time, you might, you might be going, what is God doing? Where is he at in this? I thought he loved I thought he was going to protect us. I thought he was going to care for us. And now we're carried off from our land and we're in a, in a pagan kingdom. And if you've read the book of Daniel, you know some of the adversity that these individuals are going to face. Here's something that may not be readily apparent as you read these first two verses. God is faithful. I'll try and show you from the text. God is faithful, not in a way we might expect, but in a way that can actually give us a tremendous amount of hope and embolden our faith. And and where I'm getting this is actually the first part of verse two. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. That may not feel encouraging. That is a disorienting text, but I want you to hear, how did this all happen? How'd the church find itself in the place that it did in 605 BC? How does God's church at any time in human history find itself in the place that it finds itself? The Lord. The Lord gave his people into the hand of this conquering, uh, this, this global superpower. It feels like an unusual place to go to find hope, but here's, here's why. Like, as we look at this, this, this verse as a judgment of God, here's something that we learn, something massive. God is always faithful to his word. So one of the things that, that phrase tells us, the Lord gave them into the hand. What, what that tells us is God is always faithful to his word. Here's something that he said a thousand years before this happened. Exile is coming. He told his church. He said, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you good rules and laws to flourish that you might love me and love your neighbor as yourself. He gave all sorts of commands and instructions. And he said, if you, if you disobey them, if you continue to, to walk away from them, then you're going to be carried off from your land. Someone else is going to come in and they're going to take you into a land that you do not know for a thousand years. Go back to Deuteronomy and go back to Leviticus, the fourth book in your Bible, or third book in Numbers, and and then you get to the prophets. Over and over and over again, God is sending people saying, this is what I've said. Turn back to me. 
come back. Or else exile is coming. And so one of the things that we see in Daniel 1-2 is that God is being faithful to his word, even when it's uncomfortable for us. God is telling us something about the character of God, that his promises will never fall flat, that he will never go against the things that he has declared. God is always faithful to his word. But here's the other thing that encourages us. God is always faithful to his word. He promised that exile was coming, but you know what? He also promised exile would end. If you go to books like Jeremiah, I know I'm referencing, some of you are, are tracking with this, some of you are not, but there's a book called Jeremiah, another prophet of God that was sent to encourage the exiles. And he said, through the prophet Jeremiah, he said, it's going to, take, it's going to be 70 years. You're going to be there for an amount of time. And then the exile will come to an end. And again, the Lord did it. He brought it to an end, not in a way that any of us would have expected, but he brought it to an end after 70 years. God is always faithful to his word. So what I want to do is let's carry that hope, that promise into exile. And what I hope it does is it helps us to see the present rightly. It will help us to persevere. And it will help us to have some perspective. Here's the present reality. Um, present reality. Bo Jackson, let me talk about another dislocation. Bo Jackson, anyone know Bo? Bo Jackson, uh, I would argue, is probably the most phenomenal athlete that has ever existed. That's a big claim. Put it through whatever grid you want. One of the most one of the most phenomenal. I mean, the stuff he would do, it was like watching Superman. Played professional football, played professional baseball. Uh, Nike did an ad campaign with him, Bo knows, and it would be like, he knows tennis, he knows this, you know, like just all these different sports, all these different events, because he was so good at everything that he did. He was insanely strong and lightning fast. There was a, there was a video game in the 80s and, uh, you know, terrible, terrible, like, 8-bit graphics and things. But if you had Bo Jackson as your running back, no one could ever catch you. All you had to do was get Bo and just do little zigzags on the field. And everyone's just diving, trying to catch him. Because they even knew when they designed that video game how incredible he actually was. But here's the thing with Bo Jackson. He doesn't have any records. He doesn't have any championships. Not going to be in the Hall of Fame. One of the things we might ask is, like, how is that possible? How can somebody be that incredibly gifted and talented and not have a, a different legacy in records written down? And the reason is an injury. He experienced an injury, I believe it was in 1990. He's in the playoffs. He gets tackled. Sideline, side it doesn't look terrible. He's laying on the ground for a little while. Ends up, you know, limping and injured on the side of the field. And one of the trainers came up to him and said, hey, what happened? He said, my hip just popped out of its socket. And I popped it back in. Biggest bone, right? The femur. And it comes right out of the joint. And it goes back in. The trainer says, that's impossible. Nobody is that strong. He didn't know Bo. Bo Jackson is so strong, he literally popped his own dislocated hip back into its socket. Here's the problem, though. Because they didn't believe that he had dislocated it, they didn't do the right treatment. And what ended up happening is the blood supply to the top part of his femur, it got cut off and his bone died. So he had to have a hip replacement. Here's why I tell you this very gruesome story. <laughs> if you don't recognize what's happened, you're not going to do the right work to be ready to heal it. If you don't understand that you have experienced a dislocation, if you try to ignore it, I, I, unfortunately, I think you're, you're, you might put yourself in a place where you're not going to be prepared with what to do with it. 
We need to just recognize the present reality. And it's always been this reality. That was, that was Alistair Begg's comment. It's always been this. We just didn't know. It was clouded by prosperity. It was clouded by comfort. It was clouded by protection. It was clouded by things, not bad things. It can be very good things. But I sometimes wonder if the words of Christ fall short on, I'll just say, American Christian ears when he says, you got to watch out for the riches and the pleasures and the cares of this world because they choke the fruit from coming to maturity that somehow we get so caught up in, co-opted by an American dream that we forget a kingdom vision. And so I'll just give you the present reality. Embrace that you are exiles. I'll give you a couple verses. 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Hebrews eleven thirteen in this beautiful chapter called the Hall of Faith where you just have person after person over the history of the church talking about having this, this assurance of the things that they hope for, this conviction of things they have not seen, this beautiful word called faith. Hebrews eleven thirteen. these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. These are all saying, keep browsing. This world is not your home. This isn't it. Carl Truman, in a, what I think is a really timely, interesting book, very, very thick and dense. He's coming out with a condensed version of it this next year, a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He says, he says it should be the Christian's natural state to feel that the times are out of joint and that we do not truly belong here. It doesn't mean it's all bad. No, I, please don't hear. There's beautiful, wonderful glory. I, my family and I, yesterday, we did a walk around Padden. In the afternoon, you know, the rain had stopped. The wind had kind of stopped before the wind began. We'll see what happens with the storms coming. Just, the leaves are changing. That's a beautiful spot. But all those beautiful, good things are just shadows of the new creation that's coming. This isn't it. It can't fully do what our souls need it to do. And so we got to embrace that we're exiles. It prepares us to function here. My family and I, we went to Europe, um, summer of 2019. And it was a great, ex it was a great experience in so many different ways. But one of the things that's really helpful for us to, to know what it's like to not be in your homeland. You go, and we, we're going to arrive in Madrid at like 11 o'clock at night. And so we had to plan for how am I going to get from the airport to our Airbnb? How, am I, how are we even going to do that? How are we going to navigate our ability to get there? And how is a cell phone going to work? And, oh, okay, I got a pre-plan. Where can I go to get a new SIM card? And how do I make it? What currency do they use there? Because we're going to be in Spain, and then we're in France. And so, okay, well, okay, I better download Google Translate onto my phone so that I can, which is an incredible app for, for what is. It's just absolutely incredible. You know, you like hold the thing up to a menu, and it like translates the words for you. It's got a little conversation. I went to a church service in Paris, and I'm sitting there with my phone just like pulling it up on the, the lyrics, and I'm like translating the, the speech. It's just incredible, but it's like I had to prepare for that or I'd be lost. I, I had to map out like what kind of cuisine is in these places, and how do we engage? Where, where are we supposed to, what are we supposed to go see, and what are we supposed to, to do, and how does the public transit system works, and which things should I be careful of and aware of to not pursue, and what neighborhood should, maybe it's not the best place to take my, my kids, and which places are the best, and, and who has the best macaroons, in all of Paris, like, I mean, it's just, like, those are the things that you do when you go travel abroad. It just made it very real, like, this is not my homeland. And the more you embrace it, the more you're prepared. The more we embrace the reality of exile, the more we'll be ready to live well right now in it. Perseverance, so present reality, you're, you're exiles. If you didn't know it, you are. 
It's what you are. The Bible's declared you always were. I always was. But that's what we are. Perseverance. One thing that's really interesting about chapter one of Daniel is there's, there's the, two, the first verse and the last verse of the chapter sandwich in the time period. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, so 605, and then down at verse 21, it says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's 539 BC or so, about 70 years. Daniel and his friends and all the people of God that were carried off into exile were there for 70 years. Daniel uh, likely went when he was a teenager, and then he was there until his mid-80s, where he's like mid-20 to mid-90s. Four different kings, three different kingdoms, two locations. That's a lot of disorientation that he had to go through. It's a lot of perseverance. And let me be, oh, just so uberly encouraging to you today. In that time, he didn't reverse the culture. He didn't change it. There wasn't renewal. There wasn't revival. He was faithful and hardworking and rose to prominence. And then another king shows up and tries to kill him. That's really hard. Like, are you, are you feeling encouraged now? <laughs> you know what he was, though? He was faithful. He was faithful. He was obedient. Sometimes that's enough. Larry Osborne says it like this. He says, winning or losing is not the right scorecard. Obedience is. When we do the right thing, we're being faithful, even if we get the wrong results. Some of uh, how we can handle this moment, um, and I say this as someone who, who prays that God would give the grace and faith to do this well, as a fellow sojourner in this, is to realize you can do all the right things and still get wrong results. To realize that you can, with the most compassion and kindness and winsomeness and wisdom and relational change in someone's life present the truths of the Bible and still get smashed. Now, we pray for revival. We pray for renewal. We pray that the culture is influenced to the leaven of the kingdom of God. Oh, we long for that. We don't give up on that. Daniel didn't. Daniel, Daniel rebuked the culture. Daniel called out the culture. Daniel stood against the culture, and Daniel still got thrown into a lion's den. His friends still got thrown into a fiery furnace. You still might get fired. You still might lose friends. You still might have fractures in your family. You still might be called misogynistic or chauvinistic or intolerant, as I was by a friend in my kitchen who's a dear friend. That is blindsiding. For 70 years. Welcome to Redeemer, the church of good feelings <laughs> and hugs. Um, this is, it's going to take perseverance. And what really helps with perseverance is perspective. It's perspective. Daniel knew the promises. He knew the promises. He knew that they were in exile because God is faithful to his word. He knew that the exile one day would end because God is faithful to his word. And it's no different for us now. God is faithful to his word. One day the exile will end. 
But I want you to get this. It's not a return back to some so-called golden age of Christianity in our nation. It's the entrance into a new creation. That's where we're going. That's where the Bible ends. That's where it goes. It's a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth. As we see this picture in the Bible, the holy city Jerusalem comes down to earth, adorned as a bride for her husband, where death and sickness is no more, where there's no famine or pestilence, there's no divisiveness, there's no racism, there's no injustices, there's no one wandering on the streets. That's where we're going. And setting your eyes there, saying, I'm going to keep browsing. This world is not my home. It does not have the things that my soul longs for. There's shadows and instances and appetizers of it, but it's not fully there. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, I, I, we read the first verse. Let me finish this little section. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is how we can endure and persevere and and, and try to not lose a distinctively Christian witness and have a biblical worldview with a beautiful witness in the midst of this world is to seek a better country a heavenly one, a city prepared by God alone. Stare at that, and here's what you get. You get hope. You get hope. I love how Jean Kerr says it. She she says, hope is the feeling that the feeling you have right now is impermanent. Hope is that feeling that the feeling you have when it's like, ah, it's not permanent. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, human beings are hope-shaped creatures The way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. The way Daniel was able to to do this with faithfulness and obedience is that he knew the promises to come, and he looked at them from afar. The way we'll be able to do this is by staring, seeking a better country, setting our affections and our eyes on a new creation. Keller, I've used this story multiple times, and and that last quote came out of what I would suggest is a really excellent book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And in that book, he lays out this story, a true story of two two individuals, two men that are, are captured, and they're thrown into a dungeon. And right before they're thrown in, one of the men finds out that his wife and his children are dead, and then the other one that his wife and his children are alive. They both get thrown in the same dungeon. They're both there. The one who, who knew as he went in that his wife and his children were dead, he lasted about a year or two, and then he passed away. The other one that knew his wife and his children were waiting for him. He was able to, to ride out the 10 years that he was there, and then when he got out, he got to see him. And every time I think of that story, it's, it's, it, it, their situation was the exact same. The moments they were in that dungeon were the exact same. They had the exact same experience, but they went through it completely different. Why? Hope. 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 And our hope is not in the transformations. I'll, I'll get there. All right. Well, I'm going to get there as I wrap this up. I'll get there. All right. So they hope. So pair hope with this. Divine help. 
Seek a better country and stare at the sovereign God. Remember verse 2. God is faithful and God is able. I'm just going to rapid fire some, some quotes for you. This is too good. David French, um, the end of a podcast I heard him listen to recently, said this. He says, think of the inescapable fallenness of man. Think of the utter inability of man to save himself. As we talk and talk and talk about this political measure and that political measure to sort of knit together the fabric of this country, we ultimately cannot save ourselves. It doesn't mean to not be involved. He is very much involved in, in the political world. But we, gotta, we cannot save ourselves. We, in our own strength, cannot save this civilization. We have to rest in the sovereignty of God. Yes, keep his commands. Seek justice as best we can but we ultimately have to rest in the sovereignty of God. Peace Cazero. Carry this into the moments, the nooks and crannies, the stuff of this world. When you find yourself at the grave of a loved one that you'll never see again, you can trust this God has a plan. When you're betrayed by someone you've served with, a friend or coworker, and finding yourself in a deep hole, God has a plan. When you have challenges in your family and you're disappointed, God has a plan. You end up losing your job. God has a plan. The future seems dim, but God has a plan. You find yourself in great suffering, exhaustion, and grief, and you're looking for God's hidden will. You're not sure where it is, but you can trust this. God has a plan. Our government is so divided and so split. It looks like evil is expanding on both sides of the aisle, but God has a plan. It looks like everything pure and lovely and good is not enduring, but God has a plan. You have dreams that have been shattered, but God has a plan. The pure and heart are trampled, the proud are stirred in the earth, but God has a plan. The future, God says, I've got it. I've got it. The, the Lord, by his hand, they were delivered. The Lord, by his hand, they will be brought back. Larry Osborne. And then it hit me. Don't we claim to know how the game of life ends? And if we do, shouldn't that affect the way we interpret and respond to the enemy's short-term victories and temporary advances? If our sins are forgiven and our destiny assured, if we are joint heirs with Jesus and certain he's coming back to set all wrongs right, then despair and panic over the last court decision or even the steady erosion of morality in our culture hardly seems like an appropriate response. He's not saying we don't care. He's saying we don't have to despair. Right? And you heard it. I mean, these are the promises of the gospel. If our sins are forgiven, our destiny is assured. That's the great storyline of the Bible, that we have rebelled from God. We deserve an eternal exile away from the presence of the Lord, but through the kindness and the grace and the power and the love and the tenderness and the mercy of a father, he looked at people that were rebellion and he sent his son for them to come and claim them and to, to live the way they were meant to live. And then to die on a cross to, to put to open shame all the principalities and powers of darkness that he crushed them on the crosses. Jesus Christ, I love the line from John Owen, with death stung Christ, it stung itself to death. If Christ has defeated the great enemy, what do we really have to be afraid of? Then he got out of the tomb. It's just a, it's a glimpse, it's a sign of the new creation is coming. The darkness won't win. Osborne, again, fear and pessimism make no sense when victory is guaranteed. Or this, Jesus said, I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Tim Keller's comment on that, he says, there's no reason to believe this promise has an expiration date. Isn't that good? Or maybe this. Or as Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Welcome to exile. It's going to be okay. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The promise of your presence with us and the gift of rest for us is spot on, timely, never redundant, and ever precious. Like the children of Israel traveling from Egypt to the promised land, we too are on a journey between the resurrection and the return of Christ. Thank you for the promise of being with us every season and step of our sojourn and for being our rest, giving us rest, both now and ultimately in eternity. Father, thank you for, the, for never leaving us. Thank you for the rest we already have in the gospel and for the consummate rest we will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.